Darkness is not an affirmative force. It simply reoccupies the space vacated by the light. This is the Hamilton Quarter on American Family Radio. It should be uncomfortable for a believer to live as a hypocrite. Delivering people out of the bondage of mainstream media. And the philosophies of this world. God has called you and me to be his ambassadors. Even in this dark moment. Let's not miss our moment. And now, The Hamilton Corner. Good evening. Welcome to The Hamilton Corner here on American Family Radio. I'm your host, Abraham Hamilton III, and you have made it to your On Your Way to the Weekend edition of the program. Thank you so much for tuning in to the program. What a week we've had so far. And then here we are uh, putting uh, the cap, if you will, on the week. This is the program where we remind you every single day that what goes on in your house is far more important than what goes on in the White House. I say this to you as you are making this transition, many of you, most of you, if not most of you, from your part-time jobs where you generate an income uh, to your full-time jobs where you cultivate an outcome. What happens in your house is far more important than the things that are going on around the world. The first institution that God created when he unfolded, created his created order uh, was the family. He did that with great uh, intentionality and purpose to help us to understand the primacy that we should place on our family. I would uh, say uh, very clearly the most important thing you can do for your family if you are a believer is to rear your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Uh, if you're blessed uh, to be uh, married, uh, the first component of that is serving your, your spouse as well. You know, my wife comes before my children. They know that. They understand that. That is God's order. Doesn't mean I don't love my children. Of course I do. Uh, but wife, my wife comes first. Maria comes first. And the same should be uh, for you. Then the most important thing we can do is to make sure our children are being reared in, reared in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You search the scriptures, you'll find that the responsibility for making disciples of the children born into Christian families falls at the feet. I don't like the way that sounds. It has been assigned to us, divinely ordained by God, assigned and divinely ordained to us as parents. It is our responsibility to do that. Grandparents, aunts and uncles, they can help in that process, but the primary responsibility falls to us as parents. It's not the local church's job to make disciples of our children. It's not the school's job to make disciples of our children. It is, in fact, our responsibility. It is one that, as I said just now, that has been assigned to us by God. So let us, when we think about not missing our moments, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit in the scripture, we also have to include the understanding that it includes serving our families well. I know uh, a lot of the, the work that's done behind the scenes in our homes, you know, it, it doesn't get the lights, camera, action. You know, it's not the types of th things that, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, that you're going to see news stories about. You know, they're going to say, hmm, news at 10. Mom does excellent job in inculcating the Ten Commandments in her children. Updates coming. Back to you, Brett. <laughs> you're not going to see that. You know, but the reality is we, we serve our king. We do all of this as unto the Lord. We're not looking for names and lights. 
We're looking for our names. First and foremost, will be in the Lamb's Book of Life. And we're looking for the history of the quality of our lives as believers to be recorded in the books that will be opened. As John uh, recorded for us in the book of Revelation, there's no S there, <laughs> the book of Revelation, uh, that uh, the book of life, where the names of those who, who have been blessed to enjoy eternal life will be listed. And the books of the lives of every single person will be opened when we stand before the Lord, whether it be at the uh, judgment seat, the beam seat or at the great white throne judgment. Uh, the Lord has the true recordings and we want to make sure that the quality of our lives as believers is not deemed to be wood, hay or stubble, but it's recognized to be precious, precious stones. Praise God. Well, we're going to begin today's program in the book of Esther, the book of Esther, chapter four, verses 11 through 14. Many of you are familiar with the book of Esther. It chronicles the account of the young woman. Hadassah is her Hebrew name, her Jewish name. Um, and she was the cousin of Mordecai. Her cousin actually ended up raising her. Um, but uh, Mordecai was her cousin. This all transpires under the reign of King Ahasuerus in the Persian Empire. Uh, right at about 486 through about 464 B.C. This is when the Persian Empire was the biggest, baddest nation on the block, militarily speaking, and the nation of Israel had been conquered and was now a part of the Persian Empire as a part of that kind of a cascading of the torch passing from the Babylonians, then to the Medes and then to the Persians uh, that Daniel actually prophesies about. And so uh, Mordecai and Hadassah are caught up in that. You may recall that um, King ha King Ahasuerus mm, had his own wife executed, <laughs> killed his own wife. And he ended up with a empire wide. And I say empire wide because you can't say nation because the Persian empire included multiple nations An empire wide search for the wife who will replace her. And, you know, it's 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 a wife, but he also had lots of concubines. So it was like the trophy wife, the one who would be regarded as the queen of the Persian empire. And, and, and dude ends up employing like a flavor of love type competition to where, you know, each of the women basically get a tryout. With one night with the king and, you know, uh, all of that's recorded in the Bible, man. I'm telling you, the Bible is far more interesting than any, you know, reality television show or some non-creative uh, smut peddled from Hollywood. Um, the Bible, man, is is far more intriguing. Well, things fast forward to where and the Bible says this specifically that in the 12th year of the reign of King Ahasuerus, and that, that's noted in chapter three, verse seven. In the twelfth year of the king Ahasuerus, a king of the Persian Empire, Haman prevails upon King Ahasuerus to basically issue an irrevocable decree for the annihilation of the Jewish people. This is a precursor to the Holocaust uh, that ultimately is per per perpetrated by Adolf Hitler. Uh, but there were Holocausts throughout history before you even get to Adolf Hitler. Uh, there was this hatred for the Jewish people. And this irrevocable decree was issued, something that people fail to remember. It's, it's an, an important fact in this consideration that when Haman enticed King Ahasuerus to adopt this decree uh, in Esther chapter three, uh, right at about verses nine and ten, the Bible records that Haman, Haman agreed to when, when King Ahasuerus issued this irrevocable decree to annihilate all the Jews at the end of that year. That's what the, the scripture says. Um, 
Haman agreed to pay the king 10,000 talents of silver. That's 750,000 pounds of silver. Sometimes people forget that, uh, but there was this monetary component involved as well uh, because Haman's hatred for the Jews, he was really willing to put, put his money where his hate was, <laughs> you know? And, and so Esther knew nothing about it. Hadassah, again, Esther was the Persian name she was given, very similar to when Nebuchadnezzar gave Daniel and his friends there uh, Babylonian names. Remember, Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Then you had Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. They were called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, the same thing happened with Hadassah. She was given the, the Persian name Esther as she became queen of the Persian Empire. And so she had no idea that King Ahasuerus had issued this decree and her cousin Mordecai came outside of the, the royal uh, palace and, uh, and cut the fool. <laughs> you know, he, he was weeping and mourning in sackcloth and ashes. And Hadassah sent her, her servant to go and find out, yo, what, what's, what's wrong with Mordecai? And then Mordecai conveyed the news to Esther or to Hadassah through her servant. And... Then this is what happened. Look at verse 11 in, in, in Esther chapter four. And it says this, all the king's servants. And this is, I mean, let me, I'm sorry. Mordecai informs Esther as to what happened. And also gave her servant Hatach a copy of the written decree that King Ahasuerus had issued in Susa, which was the capital city of the Persian empire for the destruction of all the Jewish people. <clears throat> then Esther spoke to the servant who was serving as the intermediary between Hadassah and Mordecai. And, and this is what was recorded in the scripture. Esther chapter four, verse 11, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces. This is Esther responding to Mordecai. Mordecai gave the bad news to the servant. Now Esther sending Hadassah, sending her reply back to Mordecai. And this is what she said. All the king's servants, and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, this is Hadassah speaking, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. In these portions of scripture, you see that Esther recognized that the Persian law required anybody who, in, who came into the king's court without being invited 
did so at the risk of his own life because the law requires that person to be put to death. And remember, Hadassah ascended to the throne of queenship in Persia because King Ahasuerus had just had his previous wife executed. So when, when Hadassah or Esther replies to Mordecai in this fashion, she's doing so with the full awareness that, yo, this king who we're dealing with, this dude will, he will off with your head. And then Mordecai had to remind Hadassah who she really was. She said, listen, the history of Yahweh has always revealed that he delivers his people. But don't you think because you're in the palace that you will escape. And then he reveals his keen insight into the divine providence and sovereignty of God. When he says, perhaps you have been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. It would immediately provoke uh, Hadassah to call to mind. Her history, her backdrop, where she came from. How was it that that she of all the women in the Persian Empire, of all of the flavor of love contestants, how she ends up with the crown on her head? See, it's easy to be caught up in all of the pomp and circumstance of your particular conditions in life. But don't get it twisted. Don't forget that God rules and reigns in the affairs of men. And the fact that you have this position at this time, Hadassah, is not a coincidence. Perhaps the very reason you have this position is because God knew that this moment would arise. And so Esther responded in such a way, which is quite frankly, as Christ followers, all of our experiences will be different. But there are certain aspects of Christ following that will be the same. For example. No matter what your background is, no matter what your gifts, your talents are, no matter what your personality may be, not one Christ follower has the, the, the freedom to sidestep the necessity of having the fruit of, spirit, fruit of the spirit cultivated in our, in our lives. You know, not one believer has the liberty to take or leave the Ten Commandments. You get what I'm saying? There are certain aspects that will be common to our lives. And another one of those aspects is coming to the realization that we are called to be the be christ's witnesses which means that we're called to literally be the living dead living as unto the lord died having died to our own agendas and esther responds i am going to do this and if i perish i perish because our standpoint as believers is that we have an eternal vantage point to where eternity looms larger in our understanding even than our temporal circumstances and i want to say to you perhaps you dear listener you have been brought to the United States of America, you have been brought to the nation where you're listening to this program from for such a time as this, that you would exalt the flag of the banner of Christ, just as Hadassah did the banner of Yahweh in her day. Shining light into the darkness, this is the Hamilton Corner on American Family Radio. Welcome back to the Hamilton Corner here on American Family Radio. Abraham Hamilton Third here with you this evening. And man, you want to talk about some foolishness. <laughs> I got some for you. I got some for you. So I reported to you, if you've been listening to the pro program for, for a while, uh, you may recall that I reported when the California General Assembly passed a bill at that time, it was Senate Bill 132 and then the soon to be recalled, hopefully. I truly do hope so for all my Californian Hamilton Corner listeners. It's the soon to be recalled 
Governor Gavin Tusum Slusum Newsom signed into law all in the name of <laughs> inclusion and compassion signed into law a bill that would allow men who identified themselves as women who happen to be criminally convicted and serving time in California state prisons to request a transfer to women's prisons because they've identified themselves as transgender. Remember I shared that with you? And I said, where is the outrage? Because I thought, especially in light of the era of the Me Too movement, that there would be someone who would cry out against this craziness. Um, and it's amazing how Goebbels Inc., who usually is provides a megaphone and a platform for radical feminism to ha take the stage. I remember lamenting openly, where are all the feminists? And you, 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 you do know, and I remember I shared with you guys a former director of the, the Georgia ACLU who was, you know, as regressive as regressives come and who was all on board with every plank of the regressive platform until she went to Disneyland in California uh, with her daughters. And she reported that and she was in the restroom with her daughters. And then you had three men over six feet tall each who entered the restroom while she and her daughters were, you know, let me just say in compromised positions using the restroom. And she said that she was racked with fear and she began to realize that the ACLU was turning all of its attention and its focus away from its long historical fights to, to focus everything on transgenderism. And she was saying, wait a minute, we need to think about these things, you know? And she ended up resigning from the ACLU. Some of you may remember that. Uh, and I described that as one of those Mike Tyson moments because everybody has a plan until they get hit in the mouth. And she could not understand this former director of the, the Georgia ACLU could not understand why those curmudgeonly conservatives would object to allowing men into women's restrooms. And after having that experience, she realized, oh, ho, ho, I get it now. Well, fast forward to where now the Central California Women's Facility, which is the largest women's prison in the state of California has become the ground zero for this social experimentation. And now we know that there is at least one, there are reports of more, but we can confirm there are at least one women, one woman who's turned up pregnant since this experiment has begun. Now I want, I want to make sure y'all understand the men didn't start getting transferred. And, and I'm not I'm saying men not to be uh, inciting or demeaning or hurtful. But the biological reality is that every cell in these men's bodies declares and cries out that they are male and they have every ounce of functioning of being male. That's not to minimize whatever mental difficulty they may have. But the, the, the rate of the identification of transgender indicates that some of these guys um, just decided to become or to identify themselves as transgender shortly before requesting the transfer to the women's facility. Now, you do with that what you want. 
but I'm just telling you what it is. And these transfers did not begin until January. And there were women in these prison facilities who were not pregnant. In, De in December, in, in, in November of 2020, we're not pregnant in December of 2020. We're not pregnant in January of 2020. I'm sorry, in January of 2021. But now, as of July 2021, at least one woman now is pregnant. And there are reports that there are more. I, I, I don't feel comfortable saying the exact number of how many more because those at to date, it's speculation. But you can expect those numbers to come out, come out here soon. And the way we have this information, because there is a radical feminist group in California, the Women's Liberation Front, which, again, it is a radical, you know, radical, regressive feminist group. However, however, they are outraged that transgender ideology has been allowed to basically replace women and girls as a viable category that has biologically determined distinctiveness they recognize that if a man can wake up at any point and say that he is a woman and the entire society says yes we recognize your womanhood that the natural consequences of that the inevitable i should say not natural but the inevitable consequences of that is that it actually eliminates and minimizes and diminishes what exactly it means to be a woman so what is if if this is the case, then what does it mean then to be a woman? That's what I'm saying. And that is what the Women's Liberation Front has said. And they have reported this quote. This is from the Women's Liberation Front. Quote, we have now heard from seven different people inside the Central California Women's Facility that at least one woman, possibly more, is now pregnant after being housed with a male felon who was transferred to the women's prison under SB 132, end quote. Y'all, they are putting these men in cells with women. They are putting these men in cells with women. When SB 132 was brought into effect, starting in January, all around this women's prison, they begin to offer things like Contraception, prophylactics, things that they had not offered in this women's facility before. Why is that? Is this not the prison recognizing the biological reality of the distinctiveness between the inmates that they were starting to transfer into the women's prison in January and the female inmate population that was there prior to the inaction of SB 132 in January. The Women's Liberation Front is reporting numerous inmates are reporting multiple accounts of sexual assault by men who describe themselves as gender confused. And the women inmates are calling this, quote, a nightmare's worst nightmare, end quote. Now, remember, this is in California. Where are the out? Where is all the outrage? Where are the protests? You have males raping women. In the prison. Under color of law. Now, I could be wrong, but I thought when the law was used 
to allow for the abuse of a particular group of people. All the rage today was to talk about systemic oppression. Well, what's this? Women are being raped in prisons by men who are transferred into the prisons in the name of transgenderism. Guys, this is happening. Along with the resources that are being now distributed in the prison, starting all of, starting in January when SB 132 took effect, after Governor Tusim Slusim Newsom signed the bill into law, <laughs> the resources, meaning the contraceptions and the prophylactics, <laughs> is a tacit admission by prison officials that the women should expect to be raped. Now, why do I say this? Because the law views sexual contact in prison <laughs> by these men and these women as being non-consensual by default. The law does not allow for consensual sexual contact between men and women in the prison or between anybody else, quite frankly. So if that's what the law says, then providing contraceptives to inmates is a tacit admission that the women should expect this. Is it not? Is it not? There are, quote, posters that recently appeared in medical rooms outlining the options available to pregnant people in the prison. They didn't have these posters in the prison before January. So why do they have them now? You see, it's one thing, Mike Tyson, it's one thing to have these fanciful ideas. It's another thing when reality hits you in the face. And uh, among the options that they're presenting in the prison, of course, it's slaughtering the, ch the children that are conceived this way, these, this way in the womb through abortion. That's a part of it. That's a part of it. But they went, these things weren't being posted before January. And why isn't Goebbels Inc. interested in this? You know why. Because they have an agenda. They have an agenda. According to the Women's Liberation Front of the recent sexual assaults in the prison, they said that the facility has not been able to prevent sexual activity between the incarcerated women and the new quote-unquote transgender arrivals. They know what's going on, but you know there's an agenda. There's an agenda afoot. There's an agenda afoot. And this is happening right now. Right now. And it seems that the powers that be are okay with it because they're doing nothing about it. This is sad, man. This is sad. This is sad, but it's happening. And nobody's doing anything about it. And this is just another one of those areas because um, their conversations, especially in light of the current, you know, social justice climate that's prevalent in our culture to talk about the injustices that are inherent to the prison systems. You have women being raped. All in the name of inclusion. And the, the officials with the ability to respond to it know about it. And, and frankly, listen, it's not rocket science. You put biological men in a prison with women, you're setting those women up for trouble, for, for, for suffering, frankly, 
for suffering. Did I mention that 20% of the transgender inmates that have been transferred to the women's, pri women's prison are registered sex offenders? Did I mention that? Did I mention that? No, I didn't mention that. They know this, and yet they do it anyway. It shows the reality that in the name of regressivism, these people are willing to sacrifice these prison inmates in order to foster and to bolster their regressive agenda. And it's sad, but it's, but it's not the first time we've seen it. And it's happening. It's happening right now. Now, getting to what I was alluding to with the consistent references to the injustices that are, that are prevalent in many people's opinions in the criminal justice system, uh, it made me think about a conversation I had not too long ago with a friend of mine. And he said, Abe, you really need to talk about this. Uh, because many of you know, uh, if you don't know, I, before coming to American Family Association and hosting this radio program, uh, I was a criminal prosecutor. In fact, the week before I came to AFA, I had just wrapped up a week-long murder trial. Um, I served as a major felony prosecutor. Uh, I, I prosecuted for uh, uh, 10 years in both in Harris County, in in the, the in Houston, Texas, and I prosecuted in the greater New Orleans metropolitan area uh, as an assistant district attorney. And, you know, one of the things that that are consistently brought up in these conversations about, you know, the criminal justice system and things of that nature. And this is something I really I want to share this insight with you, because I don't think a lot of people understand this, that you hear people say repeatedly, we have so many nonviolent uh, offenders who are incarcerated for a simple drug possession. You know, they just, you have addicts serving these long term stints in prison and they're being punished for chemical dependency. And then they even highlight, you see that that's a difference because the way that crack cocaine and powder cocaine was treated and the way that we're responding to the, to the opioid crisis now is evidence of the injustices inherent in the system. And now let me be clear, living in a fallen world where human beings are participating in anything, because systems are made up by people. There's no such thing as a system that is depopulated from people. So the reality is when you have fallen people in a fallen world who participate in anything, there will be, there will be evidence of fallenness at various points and iterations. The question we have to ask ourselves is, has that fallenness manifested itself here? And if it has, how has it manifested itself? And to be honest in our assessments and determining whether or not this is evidence that has these injustices uh, uh, are has injustice manifested itself here. And is this evidence of fallenness or is something else going on here? Because I want to explain something to you guys and I'm running out of time in this segment. Uh, so I'll just get it, get it started. Is that really what's going on here? Is that really what's going on here? I can tell you. Oh, that's disrespectful. music. Well, first thing, let me say this. The whole idea of the discrepancy between sentences, sentences for, you know, crack cocaine and powder cocaine. Do you realize that that discrepancy only exists in federal law? That there was no such discrepancy like that in state law? Then the next question should, that should be raised is, well, hmm, well, what percentage of people who are serving time in prison are convicted under federal law? versus state law because what you'll find and i'll give you some of these numbers on, on the other side of the break less than 10 percent, actually is closer to about six percent of the incarcerated population of serving time in federal prison 94 percent of people 
who are serving time are serving time in the state prison systems and in local jails. The overwhelming majority are in the state prison systems. The Hamilton Quarter Podcast and one-minute commentaries are available at AFR.net. Back to the Hamilton Quarter on American Family Radio. Welcome back to the Hamilton Corner. I'm going to try to move a little quickly because this clock is extra disrespectful. So, just looked it up on the Federal Bureau of Prisons website. There are 155,078 total, total federal inmates to date. 155,078 total. All right. <laughs> the the total prison population in, in the country, This is these numbers have been widely discussed, a right, uh, just a, sh- a hair of, uh, above 2 million. About 2.1 million people. All right. About 2.1 million people. The majority of the people who are convicted for drug offenses in our country are not even serving time in federal prison. The majority of drug offenders have not been subjected to any type of difference between crack cocaine and powder cocaine. But a lot of people don't know that. This is this is. How it's it's the it's the the baited stick, you know, the carrot in the stick to where they say that and people go rightfully so. But then the next question is, wait, how many people have actually been convicted under those laws? And the reality is that in order for somebody to be convicted for a federal drug offense, their offense has to implicate travel across state lines. Now, I know for a fact there are some instances where people have encountered simple possession charges, simple possession of drugs, convictions or charges first and then convictions for just the simple possession of drugs. Federally. But the majority of people convicted under federal law for drug crimes, they include transportation or trafficking between state lines. What do you think that implicates? Are those people that are merely you know, have a chemical dependency, they have an addiction, they're just addicts. Think about it. Now, before I get too far afield, uh, because what I really wanted to get to, and anybody who's handled any major felony prosecutions in high crime jurisdictions will tell you this is true. You know, I, I, I often hear the hear uh, the refrain, you know, amongst people who would be advocates for the, the, the social justician perspective. Shout out to my man. Uh, Daryl Harrison at the Just Thinking podcast, he coined that phrase, social justician. Uh, they'll say, when black people, when more melanated people commit murder, they get arrested and they go to jail. But when less melanated people, white people or police officers commit murder, they don't want to go to jail. To which I'm saying, that's not true. That's not true. If you have ever prosecuted major felonies in, in high crime areas, you know one of the most difficult things to accomplish is to get witnesses to testify in trial that would allow a murderer who, you know, we, because of media and other things, you use the term alleged murderer, but people on the ground, they know they're murderers. You know, I'll never forget. There was a dude in New Orleans. His name was Telly Hankton. He was a big time drug boss. Everybody knows he's a murderer. He was a murderer for, for years, had at least a reign, a decade long reign of terror, and he could never be convicted. Why? Because in, inevitably, he would be charged and arrested, and then the people who were witnesses would disappear. Sometimes they would end up dead. Sometimes they would end up in Bermuda somewhere, and nobody knows how it would happen. 
they would be gone. I've personally handled cases, personally, that in the course of prepping a case for trial, all of a sudden, witnesses disappear. Where, where do they go? So you know what happens? And this is just a little bit of inside baseball for you. And it, <laughs> the things that don't get discussed in our mainstream media, Goebbels Inc. is not interested in this. Because people ask questions, how do how do people with these these small drug offenses have these long prison sentences? You don't know what often happens. Often we have someone, say, for example, who, you know, to be a drug dealer and a murderer. And they finally are arrested and charged. Oftentimes what happens is you have this murdering drug dealer who's arrested on a murder case. Sometimes, not always, sometimes they will also be arrested uh, in possession of an illegal firearm and sometimes they also uh, would have drugs on them, all right? Or some, let's say they don't have, they're not arrested with a firearm. Say they're arrested and charged with the murder, and they also are arrested with drugs on them. And guess what also invariably happens? When the prosecutor's office get the case, they file the charges for the murder as well as the simple possession of the drugs, all right? And so then, in the course of prepping the case for trial, preparing to prosecute the case, what happens? Witnesses disappear. Prosecutors like me, the way I, I operated, <laughs> you'd have to set a case for trial. The judge, when you set cases for trial, the judge is like, okay, Abe, are you ready? When trial day is set, depending on your judge, there are no continuances. And what do you do if you have a case that you prep for trial, but now you don't have the witnesses that you would need to testify at trial to prove the murder case? And then all you're left with are the drugs. Now, you know, you know the person you have charged is a murderer you know it but you don't have the ability to put on evidence to prove it at trial you know what often happens ladies and gentlemen plea bargains so what would often happen is that prosecutors would dismiss the higher charge the more egregious charge uh maybe the, the the murder case or whatever and convict attempt to secure punishment on the drugs and so on paper and you try to get a sentence that would accurately be pursuit, a pursuit of justice because you know the guy's a murderer. But you don't have the ability to prove that. So you end up having a drug conviction on paper with a longer sentence. Because the question that should be asked in, in our society, and this is where you know TV and movies kind of work against reality. Um, our society's been conditioned to ask the question, does the punishment fit the crime? But I can tell you, as a former career prosecutor, a decade long in prosecution, the question is never does the punish. It should not be. The question is not solely does the punishment fit the crime. The question is, does the punishment fit the criminal offender? That's the question, because whenever you are pursuing justice in a criminal matter, you have to take into consideration who the person is that's being prosecuted. Do they have a criminal history? Is this a first offense? Have they, do they have a history of this? Is there a history of further uh, of violence in their history? Another case in point. You have two different defendants, two people charged with simple possession, let's say, of two grams of cocaine. One, this is their first offense. The other have a rap sheet that shows that this is their 15th felony offense. Many of the felony offenses include prior convictions for drugs as well as prior cases of violence, aggravated assault, armed robbery, you know, 
attempted murder and their dismissals for those cases. As a former prosecutor, when you see those dismissals and you recognize that hmm, there seems to be a pattern at play here, that they're violent offenses, they're dismissed, but the drug offenses seem to be the only ones where they're convictions. What, if anything, does that criminal history tell you? Could it be that this is telling you that this is not merely a person who has a narcotics addiction, but there's something else going on there? In those two instances, you have two people that in the immediate case, they would be charged with the exact same crime. But when you delve into their history, and I can tell you as a prosecutor, when I would see these dismissal cases, I would often pull those old files. I would often go and try to track down witnesses from those old cases to find out what happened there, track down people, what, what's going on there. One gives an indication that, wait a minute, this may be a violent offender. And the other may indicate this may be a person who is struggling as a narcotic. See, as a prosecutor, you have to have the, the leeway the leverage to treat each of those cases differently. But on paper to the world on the outside, they'll say, huh, look at this case. Defendant A charged with two grams of possession, possession of two grams of cocaine. They got probation. Defendant B charged with possession of two grams of cocaine. They got 15 years in prison. Discrimination, discrimination, discrimination. When the answer is no. The differences are not evidences of discrimination. They're two completely different contexts, two circumstances. One criminal offender has an indication based on the history that they've earned that communicates to a prosecutor, any prosecutor worth their salt, that this person is one that in order to have any type of rehabilitation and accurate punishment in the pursuit of justice, this person needs to spend some time in prison. This other person may be one who shouldn't? I can tell you there were numerous times when I personally went to my superiors and said, listen, I know this seems like a significant amount in, in, within the criminal justice system. Uh, you refer to drugs in weight and quantities. This is this is a significant amount of weight. This is bigger weight. But I have the indication that this person may be an addict as opposed to this other person over here. And you know what my bosses would say? Well, Abe, you signed the papers. If this comes back on us, you're the one whose name on it, because when you sign the forms, whenever there's a, a plea agreement, whenever there's a conviction at trial, guess what? My name goes on those documents, too, on the judgment and sentence records or on the pen package or whatever it may be. So why am I saying all of that? Because our society is saying we have all of these nonviolent offenders who are serving these long prison terms into which I say, how do you know they're nonviolent? What are you basing that on? Because if you're solely basing it on what is the immediate charge that they're serving time for, then your inquiry is woefully deficient. Have you done any investigation into criminal history? Have you seen any of the things that may contribute to the rationale that serves to uh, provide to events? Why this sentence may be what it is. This is why you have to resist the knee jerk penchant to allow the emotions of the cultural moment to intrude and to pervade over rational reason and logic and logic. Now, none of this is to say that there are there are not instances. Remember what I said earlier in a fallen world with fallen sinful people, that evidence of fallenness will show itself. This is true. But we have to ask ourselves. Is the case that we're talking about in this instance evidence of that or could there be something else? That's all I'm saying. These kinds of conversations should be a part of our public discourse, because if you're going to categorically say all of these nonviolent offenders are, are incarcerated, you have no idea if that's true. 
Even if you have a person who's serving time for simple possession of drugs, that's not the entire story. Now, even amongst the <laughs> uh, advocates for criminal justice reform and things of that nature, do you realize two-thirds of the people who are incarcerated, they are incarcerated right now <laughs> for violent felonies. Two-thirds of the population, violence felonies. But people don't like to be confused with facts. We don't want to dig into the numbers. We want to actually look into things. Why am I saying all of this? I am saying this because I hope to help you as you're navigating these conversations with your friends, your families, your loved ones, to have additional context that would aid you in the conversation. Because what you'll find is that we don't have an overwhelming, abundant, prevalent evidence of instances where genuinely nonviolent people are serving absorbent long-term sentences. I'm not saying there aren't some instances. There are some, but what I am saying is that they are not the majority. And so if we're going to have a reasonable conversation, we have to be reasonable. And the unwillingness of many to have a reasonable conversation is because they're not interested in having a legitimate, reasonable conversation about what's happening. They want to be emotionally charged and they want to see, here we go, the radical fundamental transformation of the United States of America. The facts of what I'm sharing with you are the reasons why people who live in America's inner cities, there were recent polls that came out when they're asked, well, you know, with all of this defund the police movement, do you want less police presence in your neighborhood? The people say no. You know why? Because they live there. They know what's going on there. The overwhelming majority of people who are living in the hoods in America, they're not they're not violent. They're not criminals. Many of them who don't have the, the resources to move elsewhere, they're held hostage by a criminal minority. The majority of the people who have the resources to move guess what? They've moved. And if you ask them why they move, the majority of the people who move from America's inner cities to rural areas, to suburban areas, the majority of their reasoning is because of crime and violence. That's just the truth. That's just the truth. And, and again, this is another one of those areas where Goebbels Inc. doesn't tell a whole truth uh, because this crime and violence is not limited, limited uh, based on Melanin content. <laughs> Talk to the people who live in, in, in the Appalachian region. Have you read J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy? Some of the things that are happening there are identical to the things that are happening in the inner cities, but they're not reported the same way in the media. They're not discussed in the same way. So again, I'm sharing all of this with you to give you a little bit of a, an insider perspective that if you're going to have a conversation about nonviolent offenders, you actually should do your due diligence to determine whether or not what your assessment or description is accurate. Now, it could be you could you could have instances where that is the case. But my question is, how frequent and how prevalent are those instances? Because if you actually do a little bit of digging, I think the evidence, the facts might reveal something different. You have to be very careful about people who try to treat exceptions as if they are the rule. Because as we talked about yesterday, honesty and integrity should mean something to you, especially if you're a Christian. And if you have a situation that is an exception, it should be addressed as an exception. It shouldn't be ignored because it is an exception, but we cannot allow exceptions to be represented as if they are the rule. And if we are aware of a more common phenomenon, we should have the integrity and the honesty to address it as such. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.